The following episode touches on topics of child sexual abuse and other situations that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. In September of 1997, on a warm Michigan evening, the young girl would be playing outside of her apartment while her mother ran to run some errands. Upon her mother's return, the young girl would be nowhere to be found. A massive search would soon be launched, but 24 years later, her disappearance remains a tragic mystery. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 12, The Disappearance of Brittany Beers. Hello everyone, welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and I just want to start off by apologizing to my returning listeners. In my last episode, after the hecticness of moving and a long pause in episodes, I promised we were back in business on a regular release schedule. Seeing as how that episode dropped November 2nd, and if all goes well, this is dropping November 30th, I didn't quite adhere to that promise. Without rambling too much, essentially, once moving was done, organizing and unpacking, as well as a few minor projects, took more time than expected. My wife and I worked split shifts, me being on second, and with the toddler being home with me during the day, and both kids being home with her in the evening, things were a slow process around here. I probably could have rushed to get this episode written and recorded. However, I felt rushed work is sloppy work, and Brittany Beers deserves better than that when attention is brought to her case. However, we should be up and running now. I'm not going to 100% promise another episode in two weeks, until I know for sure I won't have any more delays, but for now, I am planning on it. But enough about me and my excuses, and let's get to what's important. Just real quick, for our new listeners, Midwest Mystery Files is a bi-weekly, true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern United States. I can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Audible, and all other major podcast platforms. Social media and contact information can be found at the end of the episode. Now, without further delay, on to today's episode. Brittany Ann Beers was born August 1st, 1991, to Tina Stetler and Raymond Beers. Not much is on the public record about Brittany, but she has been noted as being a tomboy who loved the outdoors. She was shy and a bit skittish with strangers. Reiterating, the public information is a bit scarce. From what I can tell, she is one of three children from Tina Stetler, being the middle child between her two half-siblings, her older brother Joshua and her younger sister Autumn, and one of two children from Raymond Beers, being the younger child to her half-sister Dixie. In September of 1997, six-year-old Brittany was living with her mother, her older brother, younger sister, and her uncle James Beers at the Village Manor Apartments in Sturgis, Michigan. While she didn't live with her older sister, Dixie, they would often meet up at the Geraldine Playground, located just a mile northwest of the Village Manor Apartments. The 16th of that September was showing to be a warm September day, with temperatures going between the high 70s to the low 60s. Six-year-old Brittany, who loved being outside, was taking advantage of the warm evening, playing outside of her apartment and riding her bike up and down the sidewalk. Playing into the night, after the sun had begun to set, Brittany's mother, Tina, would leave the apartment at approximately 8.30 p.m. to run some errands leaving young Brittany and her bicycle to play outside. 
Brittany's brother Jacob would later tell authorities that approximately five minutes after Tina left, he saw Brittany sitting on a park bench in front of the apartment by herself. Another passerby would come forward and then tell investigators he saw Brittany speaking to a man in a red or brown car, and that Brittany had run up to inform the witness that she had made a new friend. The timeline does get a little confusing with these two statements. Some reports note the witness as seeing Brittany on the bench five minutes after Tina left, and seeing her talk to the man at that time, and never even mentioning Jacob. Other reports note Jacob seeing Brittany first, and then the witness, so it is a bit unclear how much time elapsed before the witness saw Brittany. Tina would return home at 9.05pm, and upon not seeing Brittany anywhere, she told Jacob to go and look for her and bring her home. After some time looking, Jacob would return home and inform Tina that he could not find Brittany anywhere. At 10.30pm, police would be called, and the search for Brittany would begin. The search would include both police as well as local citizens, and no stone was left unturned. Brittany's bike would be found first, not far from where she vanished from. A bloodhound would then be brought in and would track Brittany's scent to a nearby convenience store that was frequented by long-haul and over-the-road truck drivers, but the scent unfortunately stopped there. Investigators would also put in an intensive focus on a 40-acre area where Brittany was known to play, that was comprised of open fields, railroad tracks, and storage buildings. But nowhere that they looked could they find any sign of Brittany. In a September 2017 article from the Sturgis Journal, Sturgis Public Safety Director Jeff Smith, who was one of the first officers on the scene in 1997, stated, That first night was about 20 hours long. We slept for about four hours, and we were back at it. It felt like that for a couple of weeks. A sketch of the man that Brittany was last seen talking to was produced and distributed. The witness who saw the man described him as being in his late 20s or early 30s with short dark hair and a thick mustache. At the time, police noted that the man was not particularly a subject, but just a person of interest and potential witness that they wished to speak to. Soon after Brittany's disappearance, through rumored and realized events, an unfortunate, grim picture of Brittany's home life would soon come to fruition. Neighbors would report that Brittany was seen outside quite often playing by herself, and that her mother would even allegedly lock her out of the home if she had misbehaved in any way. Another neighbor would report that she had once seen Brittany playing in a sandbox near the neighbor's apartment, and she would tell Brittany she needed to go home, because the sandbox was located quite far from Brittany's apartment, and she shouldn't be out that far by herself. I'll take this moment to remind everyone of the 40-acre area that was searched, because it was a known area for Brittany to play. I did a little Google mapping, and while I get the terrain can change in 25 years, the likely location of this area is to the north of Village Manor, where Brittany lived. While I couldn't figure a distance as the crow flies, or walking in a straight line, the north end of that field is located 3 miles from Village Manor if you walked a sidewalk route. So regardless, if Brittany was indeed prone to play far away from home, it would appear she was clearly allowed to go quite far. I bring this up because while the neighbor's claims could be called alleged, I feel the fact that police searched this area due to it being known as a play area for Brittany gives their claims a bit of credence. Mere days after Brittany's disappearance, James Beers, Brittany's uncle who lived in the home, was arrested on domestic violence charges after hitting Tina with a bottle. 
Months later, in January of 1998, Brittany's brother, 13-year-old Joshua, and her sister, 3-year-old Autumn, were removed from the home amid allegations of neglect by Tina, as well as physical and sexual abuse by James Beers. Upon the children's removal, Tina had dispositional hearings upon which she was ordered by a judge to find employment, obtain and maintain a suitable home for her children, and due to his history of violence and abuse, and the fact that Joshua was terrified of him, to stay away from James Beers. Court documents pertaining to the case would reveal that this was not the first instance of alleged sexual abuse against the children. In 1996, Kevin Folsom, the father of Joshua, was convicted on a charge of criminal sexual conduct and was currently serving time on that charge. The victim in that case was Brittany Beers, who was three years old at the time of the incident. The abuse came to light when a babysitter tried to give Brittany a bath and the young girl refused. The babysitter questioned Brittany, who then spoke of what had happened. Upon his arrest, Kevin Folsom told police he had been bathing Brittany Beers when he became aroused and began the abuse. If your skin is crawling, don't worry, so is mine. I do want to note, even though this information is widely available, I did struggle some with if I should include it or not in this episode, as it did seem I was being overly exploitive of Brittany, especially as seeing that Kevin Folsom was in prison at the time, making him an impossible suspect. I did decide, though, that it was important to nail down the sort of environment Brittany was living in prior to her disappearance, a subject we will speak more on later in the episode. If you decide to do further reading, you'll find that James Beers, and occasionally Raymond Beers, yes, Brittany's father, were also allegedly involved in the abuse. However, I do want to stress at this time that Kevin Folsom is the only person to ever be convicted in the situation. Returning to Tina Stetler and her children, in 1998, Tina had a termination petition hearing in which she voluntarily gave up her parental rights. She would state that she did not have accommodations nor the financial stability to take care of her two remaining children. Because Brittany was still missing, she was removed from the petition. Were she to be found, a new petition would have to be filed with another hearing being held at that time. After the hearing, Joshua would go to the custody of Tina's father, and Autumn would go into the custody of Tina's brother and sister-in-law. Autumn's father, Lonnie Garvey, had passed away in 1996. He was a cook at a local restaurant, and multiple sources cite him as being a good-hearted individual and a good father, who was often seen feeding all three siblings at his restaurant. Through all of the circumstances with her family, investigators would not falter on their search for Brittany, nor would the community give up either. By 1999, investigators had received almost 800 tips, and upon release of an age-enhanced photo, Brittany's face was placed on almost 500 trucks, as well as 200 NASCAR and Hot Rod Association vehicles. Despite tips and photos, though, investigators would note that it had still been a rough investigation. In a 1999 interview, then Sturgis Police Chief Eugene Ali would tell WNDU 16 News, We know, with the passing of time, people forget, and we want the public and family relatives to know that the law enforcement has not forgotten. The tips have almost dried up. That's a statement of fact. We live with this case every day. The family lives with the case every minute of the day. 
A girl of six years old does not disappear off the face of this earth. Someone knows what happened to her. We need that person or persons to make the most important call of their life. Over the next year, tips would filter in here and there, but they would all fall flat, with nothing being concrete enough to move the investigation along. Then, in September of 2000, a potential lead would come in. 170 miles from Sturgis, in the Detroit suburb of St. Clair Shores, Michigan, 41-year-old Russell Toombs would have a computer confiscated from his home. Contained on that computer was approximately 2,000 photos of child pornography and sexual abuse. In approximately a dozen of the photos was a young, blonde-haired girl who appeared to be approximately 4 to 6 years old. Macomb County prosecutors told the media that at the time, a large amount of child pornography was produced internationally. However, these photos appeared to be domestic due to the furnishings and the look of the locations within the photos. Prosecutors would distribute a photo of the young, blonde girl in an attempt to identify her. It wouldn't be long before the Sturgis Police Department would see the photo and come calling after noticing that she bore a resemblance to Britney Beers. Investigators would strongly stress to the media that the girl only bore a resemblance to Britney, and it was not yet confirmed to be her, with Police Chief Eugene Ali telling the media, Some of the pictures, in a way, resembled Britney Beers. We're currently following up on that lead. We want to emphasize this is a lead, not absolute positive identification, contrary to what some people have said. It would only be a short time later that it was confirmed that the girl was not Britney Beers. The young girl in the photo, however, was identified and tracked to Texas, where she would testify against her, and I'm using this word very loosely, parents, who would be convicted on charges related to child pornography. After this, Britney's case unfortunately quiets down for almost 15 years, until a new person of interest was named. In July of 2015, 65-year-old Daniel Furlong was arrested after luring a 10-year-old girl into his garage in White Pigeon, Michigan, and attempting to restrain her with electrical cords. Luckily, the girl was able to escape and alert police, who then arrested Furlong. Upon his arrest, police took samples of Furlong's DNA, which came back as a match to the saliva and blood collected off the victim in another murder. That victim was 11-year-old Jody Perrick of Constantine, Michigan. Jody was reported missing in November of 2007 before being found murdered in the Constantine Township Cemetery. For many years, heavy suspicion had fallen on a local reserve officer, but the matching of Furlong's DNA to the scene would change everything. In a plea deal that would see the charges dropped in the July 2015 abduction attempt, as well as any other murders he would confess to outside of Jody Perricks, Furlong confessed to abducting Jody off the sidewalk outside of his home in Constantine and pulling her into his garage. He then proceeded to sexually assault her and suffocate her with a plastic bag. He then took her body and dumped it in the darkest part of the cemetery that he could find. During his interview with police, Furlong would be questioned about Britney Beers, but he denied any involvement. On this, Sturgis Police Chief Jeff Smith would tell the media, I'm not sure if he can tell the truth about anything, let alone if he was guilty of something. It's back to gut feeling. We know what he did to Jody Perrick. Then several years later, he basically tried to do the same thing again. What's to say he didn't do it before? Smith also noted that along with Furlong's ability to commit the crime, 
The other leading factor making him a person of interest was that he resembled the composite of the last man speaking with Brittany right before her disappearance, stating, When I saw the picture of Mr. Furlong, I thought of our composite and how much it resembled the composite. It was soon revealed by St. Joseph County Prosecutor John McDonoghue that Furlong kept a list of names of young girls in his White Pigeon neighborhood, and there was a high likelihood that he would have struck again. McDonoghue would state to the media, this wasn't just a random thing. He's a very calculated person. While Constantine, White Pigeon, and Brittany's hometown of Sturgis are all located in St. Joseph County, there's no direct connection to Brittany Beers and Daniel Furlong. In a January 2016 interview with WWMT News Channel 3, Sturgis police would state the only connection was the Mottville Speedway in White Pigeon. Speedway owner Merle Holden told News Channel 3 that Furlong's wife worked at the concession stand. Raymond Beers, Brittany's father, raced there for many years. Stepping away from Furlong, Merle Holden would also state that Raymond had told him that Raymond believed his brother, James Beers, the man who lived with Brittany's mother, had killed Brittany. Investigators did note that there were a few other persons of interest outside of Daniel Furlong. However, they were choosing not to name them and they had only named Daniel Furlong due to the increased public attention on his case and Jody Parrick's. Daniel Furlong would ultimately be sentenced to 30 to 60 years in the second-degree murder of Jody Parrick. There has never been anything to definitively link him to the disappearance of Brittany Beers. While tips have continued to come in here and there over the last six years, and despite investigator and community determination, the case of missing Brittany Beers appears to be colder than ever. A young girl plays outside her home, something she's done a thousand times before, and vanishes in an instant, leaving many questions, no answers, and a few theories. The biggest theories that have been bounced around have essentially been that either Daniel Furlong abducted and murdered Brittany Beers, and then disposed of her somewhere that she has yet to be found, and the other is that she was either taken by someone not yet considered, or at least named, by law enforcement. Let's take a look at Daniel Furlong. Daniel became a person of interest after attempting to abduct one girl, of which his arrest led police to discover that he had murdered 11-year-old Jody Perrick in 2007. There's a lot of pieces that fall into place. Furlong's history of violence toward young girls, the fact he lived in the same county, and struck within that same county, and he closely resembled the sketch of the last known person to speak with Brittany. I'm not taking the fact that Furlong's wife worked at the same raceway Raymond Beers raced at into much consideration. What is reported only mentions Raymond Beers and never makes any note of Brittany being present. Truthfully, little is actually reported on Raymond and Brittany's relationship or how often they saw each other. Furlong certainly seems overly plausible. I have to admit that the sketch of the man seen talking to Brittany does bear a resemblance to Furlong, Though, in 1997, he would have been in his mid-40s as opposed to his late 20s or early 30s. But apparent age is obviously in the eye of the witness who described the man, and from their angle, age may have been hard to tell. Pictures of both the sketch and Furlong will be provided on the podcast social media pages. From what I can tell about Furlong, though, is that he appears to strike close to home and he's not what I would exactly call careful. While I noted before that Furlong lived in St. Joseph County, as did Brittany Beers. I've seen nothing that said he lived in close range of Brittany at the time of her disappearance, let alone even in Sturgis. I bring this up 
because Jody Perrick was from Constantine, and Furlong was living there at the time of her murder. The girl that escaped him in 2015 was from White Pigeon. Furlong resided in White Pigeon at that time. In fact, he grabbed both girls from outside of his own home. This isn't to say that that would be his only M.O., but it is one of the many common denominators between the two cases. Even the names of the girls that Furlong had written down were within close proximity to him. I just find it hard to believe that after such a large search was sparked by a young girl from a different town, that Furlong would suddenly risk having the same thing happen by taking girls from a community he actually lived in. I also want to point out that while Furlong left Jody in the quote-unquote darkest part of the cemetery, he still left her in an area where she was 100% absolutely going to be found. If he did indeed abduct and murder Britney Beers, he clearly hid her somewhere she has yet to be found. Again, Jody's case would have almost been a step backwards for Furlong. The only real scenario that I can imagine is, and I want to stress, this is heavy speculation on my part based off what is known, is that maybe the man seen talking to Brittany was Furlong. Maybe he had never done this before and he was nervous about taking her from her own neighborhood. Maybe he talked Brittany into walking to the convenience store the dogs tracked her to and sprang into action from there. Like I said, it's speculation, but it's a possible enough scenario. This could also pertain to any abductor in the case who is not Furlong as well. The biggest issue that I have is that Brittany was known to be very shy, and while maybe she could be convinced to have a quick chat with someone in their vehicle while she remains at a distance, it would still be a big jump for her to follow a stranger's direction to head to a nearby convenience store to meet them. In terms of someone who is not Daniel Furlong being Brittany's abductor, there are a few avenues to look at. There's still the scenario I just mentioned. Aside from the fact that the individual in the vehicle could have convinced Brittany to walk to the convenience store, she may have just walked there on her own accord, with the man having no influence whatsoever. It has been well established that Brittany was clearly allowed free range to go where she pleased. The convenience store, Lightning Quick Marathon Gas, is located just southeast of Village Manor Apartments. A mere five-minute walk. Maybe she walked there and someone saw a moment of opportunity and unfortunately grabbed her. Whether that was the case, or the man in the car lured her there, the convenience store sits on Highway 12, a major highway. The culprit could have been out in the parking lot and gone within a few seconds. Village Manor itself is less than a minute off that same highway in a vehicle. Really, Brittany could have gone walking or riding her bike in any direction, and the unfortunate truth is, an abductor could have had her in a vehicle and across the state of Michigan, or just south into Indiana, in no time. From what is known in the case, any one of these situations is probably not that far out of the question. One angle I think would be interesting to look at is that in a 1998 South Bend Tribune article, a waitress who worked with Lonnie Garvey, the father of Brittany's sister Autumn, speculated that she thought someone took Brittany to give her a better life. This is interesting to me as I can't think of a time I've ever seen such a theory thrown around. Granted, it's not a theory I've seen thrown around outside of that waitress's comment, but I think it's worth considering. Based off what is alleged and what's confirmed, I think it's safe to say that Brittany did not have the best home life in terms of parental guidance or who was allowed to be around her. By the time she was six years old, she had been through more than any child should have to go through. Couple that with claims of being locked out of her home, as well being seen at great distances from her home unattended, plus living with a man that her mother refused to leave even after being told by a judge to for the welfare of her children, 
It doesn't take much to tell that things were not good inside of the Tina Stetler and James Beer's apartment. Look, I'm a father. And as such, I do my best not to be too judgmental of other parents when I don't know a whole story. Especially ones I don't know. However, there's more than enough here to give me a gut feeling that all was not well in Brittany's life. And I wouldn't find it hard to believe that maybe someone who was leaving town for good, and maybe didn't know the family directly, but knew enough, they decided to take matters into their own hands, taking Brittany off to raise as their own, or to hand her off to someone else that they knew would do Brittany good. Once again, that's all speculation, but people do make bold moves when it comes to the safety of children. So once again, it's not outside the realm of possibility. There is extended family who would have most likely have ended up with Brittany eventually, which does make such an abduction more than questionable but it's still the most optimistic outcome in this case. Something I'm not going to theorize on, but I do want to address, is James Beers. Anyone who does further reading on this case will see that a lot of people online, and a lot of people from Sturgis, have pinned this case on James. After Daniel Furlong, he is the most talked about person. Even Raymond Beers allegedly told the owner of Mottville Speedway that he thought James was the culprit. Taking all that into account, and despite all evidence that he isn't the most savory individual, from a research standpoint on what's available in this case, there's just not enough information available for me to openly speculate on his involvement. I know I preface a lot that what I'm saying is speculation, but that speculation is based off known info. And in this case, there's no public information on what exactly went on with James Beers that night or within the next couple days. He's never even been officially named a person of interest, and him and Tina were most likely the first two people looked at due to their parental roles. Not to say he's not one of the unnamed persons of interest, but at this juncture, I just don't have enough information to say anything at all. It's been 24 years since six-year-old Brittany Beers disappeared off a bench in front of her apartment. 24 years, thousands of tips, one named person of interest, and a lost opportunity for Britney's best days to be ahead of her. The biggest tragedy here isn't all in the neglect and abuse Britney faced before her disappearance. It's truly that her disappearance came before the light at the end of the tunnel. It was less than a year before her siblings were removed from the home and placed with other family members. And while I can't confirm 100% that that made their life better, I can only imagine it did, and I have to believe that the same would have happened for Britney. A yearly vigil is held on the anniversary of Brittany's disappearance at the Village Manor Apartments, a sign that the community has not forgotten about her, and they refuse to give up hope until a true answer is found. Extended family, including Brittany's grandparents from Texas, have attended many times over the years. As of 2018, Tina has only attended once. Raymond Beers passed away in 2001. Brittany Ann Beers was last seen on September 16, 1997. At the time of her disappearance, she weighed 45 pounds, stood 4 feet tall, and was missing 4 upper baby teeth. Brittany was last seen wearing a white tank top with a floral print, pink tie-dye shorts, and white sneakers with a pink design on the sides. Brittany has blue eyes and blonde shoulder-length hair that she usually wore tied back in a ponytail. Although, the last photo of Brittany taken shortly before her disappearance shows her with much shorter hair. It had reportedly been cut short by her uncle James after he stated that she wasn't taking proper care of it. 
Brittany Beers was six years old at the time of her disappearance, and if she was alive today, she would be 30 years old. If you have any information on the disappearance of Brittany Ann Beers, please contact the Sturgis Police Department in Sturgis, Michigan at 269-651-3231. If you're looking for any further reading, there's several articles available on the case, specifically from the Sturgis Journal and the South Bend Tribune, and most of the local news stations in Michigan. I also want to credit Emily Thompson of Morbidology, as her article on Brittany's case and her citations served as a jumping-off point for this episode. If you wish to see photos pertaining to the case, let me know what you think happened, have a case suggestion, or would just like to follow me on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, or you can search for Midwest Mystery Files on Facebook. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you like what you hear, please feel free to rate and review. This helps make the podcast more visible in searches, which in turn helps brings more attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to everyone who has done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all again soon.